The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to be welcoming Seth Sykes. I'm going to tell you a little bit about this acclaimed performer. He's a singer, also a director, a performer through and through. He's been called one of the premier interpreters of the Julie Garland songbook. It's just that simple. He is one of the champions of the American songbook. He has an upcoming concert. It's going to be at Feinstein's 54 Below. It's entitled Seth Sykes, The Songs That Got Away, August 14th at 7 p.m. So, Seth, first of all, thank you very much for making the time to talk with us. I'm so excited to be on here. It's an excitement for me, too. And you you said you were nervous. And shouldn't I be the one who's nervous? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> I don't do these I don't do these podcasts or interviews in general very much, very often. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever done a podcast interview before. So but the other thing is that, you know, I haven't I have been very busy this last year. So I'm I haven't done a show in New York in the last year. So this is sort of my <laughs> I guess you could say my comeback. I'm just sort of trying to get my head back into the zone of of this show and the Judy Garland material and all of that. And also, I, I saw some of the people you've interviewed over the last, you know, several years, and they were, you know, there's some big shoes, big shoes to fill. Well, you're very kind. On the note of New York, the greatest city on earth, what is it like being a singer and doing a show in that city? Well, first of all, it's... <laughs> New York, as you know, is, is both the greatest place in the world, the greatest city in the world, and it's also very, very tough to live here. You know, it's very hard. I do lots of things in the theater. I'm, as you, as you said, I, I, I'm a singer, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But I also work a lot as an associate director, um, which pays some of the bills, but not all the bills. And on top of that, I have myriad other jobs like. I work part-time for a not-for-profit, and I, I babysit sometimes to pay the bills, and it's not easy. But it is exciting because when you live in New York and you're singing, especially at a place like Feinstein's 54 Bluff, sometimes people like Michael Feinstein come to hear you sing, or John Kander, or Joel Gray. I was doing a Liza Minnelli tribute concert a few years ago, and... Susan Stroman, who had worked with Liza a lot, and John Kander came together. And then a few nights later, Joel Gray came. So it was this sort of amazing thing. So I guess the, the thing about performing in New York is that if you do it in New York, people are going to pay attention. You know what I mean? The, the show business, like, like yeah. it's, it's incredibly strange to me that, and we'll come back to this, the Judy Garland obsession, but that I, I'm performing my little show on the same stage where Judy Garland's daughter, Lorna Lust, performs her show all the time. You know, it's a little surreal. I bet. Let's just dive into that right now. What is it about Judy Garland? Oh, it's such a, it's such a difficult... Wait, is there a second part to that question? <laughs> I guess but not. I mean, believe it or not, there, there would be people who would say, you know... Why? I mean, it, it, it's almost self-evident, anybody who has listened to a Judy Garland record, but for the uninitiated, let's say, 
what is it about Judy Garland that captivates your attention to the point where you say, you know what, I would like to pay the ultimate tribute to her? Well, first of all, this is the age-old question that people people ask this question of me, and they ask, and I hear people talking about it at parties, and I, it's just this thing about her that's inexplicable. Why so many people still to this day? I'm 35 years old. I'm not, you know she was dead for more than 30 years before I was born. I think, like, yeah. And still somehow she reached me in a very profound way. And it's the same way for many other people. I've never heard a satisfactory explanation for it. I've tried several times to come up with one. But I think, as you said, it's evident when you sit back, like say you sit back and you turn on the Carnegie Hall, Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall performance, which is, in my opinion, and in many other people's opinion, the greatest single night in showbiz history. There is something so raw about what she's able to do. I, I heard a quote, can't remember who said it, but when, when she opens her mouth to sing, you're not sure if she's going to open her throat or open a vein. <laughs> and I, what's funny, what's interesting about that is that I didn't know about that part of Judy when I became obsessed. And if you don't mind me going back to sort of the origins of my obsession, I grew up in Texas and a small town of Paris, Texas, in sort of, you know, rural northeast Texas. And somehow, because my aunt had these VHS tapes of um, a movie, one particular movie, which I became obsessed with as a kid when I was seven or eight years old, called Summerstock, I saw this woman in the show and I just fell madly in love, but not in the way that, you know, you might fall in love with a, you know, the, a sexy teenage, you know, teenage star. It was something about this woman and her voice. It was the most charismatic personality and warm. And then she would open her mouth to sing and this, this depth came out, you know, and I don't know what it was. And then I discovered more and more of her songs as time went by. And then later when I, moved to New York, I realized that all these other people, like so many people for so many years, had this same reaction. So I'm sort of going around in circles here. I, I don't know what to tell you that it was, that it is, but it, it's real. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, the name of this particular show that you're doing, The Songs That Got Away, I'm hoping you can explain a little bit about what that means. So... Judy sang a song in the movie A Star is Born called The Man That Got Away. And, of course, it's one of the, the great Judy ballads by Harold Arlen and lyrics by Ira Gershwin. And, it's, you know, it's one of the great heartbreak ballads. In fact, I, a lot of people, a lot of other songs, like, for example, maybe this time, a lot of these kind of songs are now called The Man That Got Away song. It sort of epitomizes a certain kind of song. And that song in particular, I started singing in piano bars a while back and it sort of became my go-to Judy song. So just playing with that title a little bit for this particular concert, which I've called The Songs That Got Away, I've decided to include several songs of hers that I haven't sung yet necessarily over the last several years as I've, I've been performing her song. And also some of the songs that got away from her. When she died in 1969, she was 47 years old. 
which is you have to take a moment to really take that in. I'm 35. So she was a little bit over more than a decade than older than I am now. And the amount of work that she did in that, in those 47 years is just incredible. So if she had lived another, you know, to have a normal life lifespan, like for example, like Liza is, I think 73 now, if she had lived as long as Liza or any other average person, imagine all the songs she might have sung and how great of a body, how bigger of a body of work that we would have of her. She never got to hear Sondheim songs like Broadway Baby or I'm Still Here. You can imagine her singing a song like that. She never got to hear a lot of those great Candor and Ebb songs. I mean, the list goes on and on. So what I decided to do in this concert is not for the entire night, but for a section of the night, include some songs that she might have and probably would have sung had she lived longer. Something that you've mentioned a couple of times now is the songwriters, the lyricists and the composers of these incredible songs that Judy Garland sang and that you sang as well. And one of the names, I have to confess, I'm absolutely enamored. One of my absolute favorite composers would be John Kander. What is it like for you when you're singing there and somebody like that, a heavyweight like John Kander walks in and you're in the middle of the song? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's very scary, that's for sure. It's also just overwhelming because I, while I have am singing again, I, I, I didn't consider myself to be, a, uh, I stopped performing for about a decade. And this is all relatively new to me just in the last, I think, three or four years, just coming back to singing. And so to have someone like that, someone whose name I idolized since I was a kid, is in a weird way, validating is not the right word, but just it's so uncanny because the night he came, I was singing Liza's song. So therefore I was singing, you know, five or six Candor and Ebb songs, so songs that he had written and in fact wanted one of the songs after he came up, he came up to me after the show and said, I had forgotten I had written that song, which is very amusing to me. It was a song called Plenty of Time. Gorgeous song. Oh, so no, no, sorry. It was a song called Sorry I Asked, which is a song that Liza sang. And, you know, just the, just the, just the idea that people would have enough, I guess, interest in what I'm, what I'm doing to, you know, suggest that John Kander come was incredibly moving to me. It was a very moving moment. And what about the fans? What is it like for you when you've finished a show and these people that you don't know, they want to meet you. They want to shake your hand. They want to get a picture for you with you. What's that like? <laughs> well, my immediate reaction is that they must be crazy because, uh, as I say, I don't mean to be playing humble here, but I am sort of still getting used to the idea that people are paying money to come hear me sing. And, but the other thing is that because, because I'm singing these songs that mean so much to me and have meant so much to me my whole life, these Judy Garland songs, it just thrills me to know that other people respond to them too. Because while, you know, they may be complimentary of me, it's really all about the songs. 
you know, and that goes back to the title of the show again, the songs that got away. I'm passionate about these songs. And I think people find it surprising that a person from my generation prefers to sing these songs. And not only do I prefer to sing these songs, they're really the only kind of songs I can sing. I went to acting school uh, here in New York to a school called Circle in the Square Theater School. And I thought I wanted to be a musical theater performer. And so my teachers there, they, they would give me songs to rehearse, you know, for class and to audition with that were like, you know, contemporary musical theater pop songs or just pop songs from the radio, rock songs. And, and boy, was I lousy on those. It just didn't work at all. And still today, like if I go to a karaoke party or if I go to some, some normal piano bar where they... They only know the hits of the day or Elton John songs or something. I'm just lost. You know, I can't, I can't do it at all. But something about these songs, the way I connect with them, the way they sit on my voice, it's just sort of the only thing I can do. And it's the only thing I want to do. So when these people come up and thank me or congratulate me, I feel a little bit of to be a kindred, kindred spirit with them because I know that they, they, love the songs like I do. Is it hard at all being a young person and liking this music that some people would say is, you know, old people's music or something like that? Is it difficult? Oh, it's terrible. I mean, I would, I would, I, I, think, I mean that in a, I not, I don't literally mean it's terrible, but I mean, <laughs> I would much, I would vastly prefer if I were at the deli or at at a bar on a Friday night that they weren't playing the contemporary songs that they play today. It would be, I guess the, I guess the idea here is that I'm, I'm born in the, in the wrong decade, but no, I wouldn't say it's hard, but I do imagine sometimes going out, you know, on a, any night of the week and walking into a nightclub and hearing these fabulous old songs played by, you know, a great, and a night, great nightclub like they used to have all the time. Do you know, I don't know. There's a band called, Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks. Oh, yeah. And on Monday and Tuesday nights in New York, they had a restaurant called Iguana, which is a Mexican restaurant on 54th Street, just down the block from 54 below. They On Mondays and Tuesday nights, he and his band, they play music from the 20s and 30s, and they're old orchestrations from actually from that period. And sometimes they go a little further in the 40s and 50s. But I go there once a month or so and i and i just pretend that this is the real world you know and it's not but that wonderful sound of these old tunes and there's such craftsmanship in these songs and yeah yeah it, i guess i guess it is kind of hard <laughs> now that i'm talking about it we're talking with seth sykes again he's going to be performing at feinstein's 54 below august 14th at seven o'clock p.m for anyone who comes out, whether they live in the city, whether they're in New York or they're maybe going to travel into the city and they're looking for something to do, what can they expect, not just from your performance, but also this place, Feinstein's 54 Below? Why should they go? Uh, well, first of all, Feinstein's 54 Below is in the basement of what used to be the nightclub, Studio 54. and you know, now the Studio 54 upstairs is a theater, Broadway theater, again. But the basement, they've turned it into a supper club. And 
apparently the, this particular room is the room where it happened, if you know what I mean. It's, a, it's the room where all the fun was had, from what I'm told. And it's this beautiful room that holds about 150 feet people. And, and they did it right, the owners of the place. They just they got it right in that they hired Broadway's scenic designer and lighting designer. Ken Billington's a lighting designer. We'll think of the scenic designer in a second. But it just feels like stepping back in time. It's classy and elegant. And the food is also really good, which is, you know, a lot of cabaret venues, that's not necessarily the case. And a lot of these other cabaret venues, they don't feel as elegant as this. But this really does feel like walking back in time. So you get a really elegant experience out, a really old-fashioned time. And then with my particular show, what you get, what you don't always get, is you get a seven-piece band. I have a terrific orchestrator named Matt, Matt Ament, young guys also younger than me, who loves this kind of music. And he reduced these orchestrations down for a, a live band. And they feel, you know, they feel big and powerful. And, and, you, and you very rarely get to hear this kind of music with a full band, with a full orchestration. Has to be an incredible experience to get to witness a band like that in a nice club like that. Again, it's August 14th at 7 o'clock p.m. at Feinstein's 54 Below in New York City. Now, Seth, if you could sing a duet with anybody alive, and really, you could just snap your fingers and this could happen, who would you sing a duet with? I think there's only one answer here, and uh, that would be with Judy Garland's daughter, Liza Minnelli. I, you know, I'm a huge fan, and Judy and Liza sing together all the time. They, you know, there are several recordings of them singing together. They perform together at the Palladium in London, and it's it's just this incredible thing. They sang, you know, the the same duets that. Uh, the Happy Days of Here Again duet that she that Judy sang with Barbara Streisand. Liza did it with Judy, and they did many other things. So I think that getting to sing with Liza, who's also a hero of mine, would get to be like a little bit like singing with Judy, and I think that's what I would have to choose. Okay. I had a feeling it might have been Liza, but now I don't want you to tell us yet, but I want you to have it in your mind. Okay. The song that you would want to sing with Liza Minnelli. Tell me when you have okay. it in your mind. Okay. Have you got it? No, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's tricky. Let me think about that for a few more minutes. <laughs> I want it to be the, the perfect answer. <laughs> we'll come back, but okay. <laughs> be thinking of that, okay? Okay, okay, I will. So you were mentioning that living in New York can be a very exciting thing, a very cool place to live. It is the greatest city on earth. But tell us a little bit about the other side of it. It's not always easy. No, it's it's not at all. As I said, I came from a very modest background in, in Paris, Texas. I moved here when I was 18. I went to acting school. I started performing I, and then i realized oh <laughs> i gotta pay the bills somehow so 
I've been able to figure out a way to balance a creative lifestyle with having a day job or various day jobs that are flexible, which is very hard to come by. Luckily, I have not had to do the waiting tables thing, which a lot of performers and artists do because it's so flexible. I found a temp job that became a somewhat full-time job working for a not-for-profit doing administrative work for them, which I've worked for them on and off for the last 15 years. And But it, it really has made it possible for me to work on shows and perform. I also worked, as I had mentioned earlier, and as you mentioned, on and off Broadway, mostly as an associate director. And it's been an interesting thing. You know, I thought I wanted to be a performer when I went to acting school. And then when I realized how difficult and competitive and distressing it is to audition all the time and go from job to job, I realized that that really wasn't, that was really not the the place for me. And so I also had always had an interest in directing and I almost went back to school to study directing, but I got very good advice, I, I think, from a dear friend, actually it was Steve Sondheim, told me that don't go back to school. If you want to be a director, get in the room with the best directors in the business and just learn from observing. And that's what I did. That's what I tried to do. I started as a production assistant on shows and eventually worked my way up and assisted people like Lonnie Price and Jack O'Brien. And lately I've been working for many years as the assistant and associate director to David Comer. And these last two years, I've been working as the associate director of a musical called The Band's Visit, which closed on Broadway in April. We just launched the national tour, but which won 10 Tony Awards last year, including Best Musical. So I think part of making it here is maybe accepting the fact that there's not just necessarily one path for you or one lane. You have to be open to all sorts of things and all sorts of lanes. If you want to make it, if you want to feed your artistic soul, your artistic side, you have to say, well, you know what? Maybe I, maybe I wasn't meant to be starring in a Broadway show or even in the ensemble. Maybe I'm supposed to be singing in a cabaret space and being the assistant director on a big new Broadway musical. And there's all sorts of other fulfillment that comes in things that you never expected. So I think it's, you know, it's, it is very hard. And, and then you have to work other jobs sometimes to, luckily I have to do that less and less. As time goes on, I'm able to pay the bills more and more by just by art, artistic endeavors. But being open to, to other avenues, I think is a, a huge part of what it takes to live in New York. Hmm. What about dreams that have not come true? Can you tell us about maybe that dream that you have that you would just do anything for that to happen and and maybe you're working on making that happen now? It's a really good question. It's a really hard question and it's not easy to answer. Letting go of a dream like the one that I had in high school and in college was, you know, which was performing in a Broadway show as an actor. Letting go of something like that is not an easy or quick process. It takes 
years. It took me years to accept it. And now I'm not even sure 100% that I have accepted it. But I found so, the idea that I was able to find singing again, which was really, when I examined it, when I looked at what, what my goals and dreams actually were, it was really about singing. It wasn't really about acting. I came to acting through singing, through my love for these old songs, through, then through band and choir. And then they put, started putting me in shows in high school. And, and I was okay, but I wasn't great. And, but I knew that it was these theatrical songs that I loved. And then later, accepting the fact that I wasn't going to be an actor, but realizing that what I was interested in were these songs and was singing sort of makes, made things a little bit easier. Taking, and like for the, the Sondheim lyric, taking dreams, readjusting them, which is what I think I've done. I just sort of readjusted them and realized, especially having worked on so many shows now, to see what it's really like to be in a Broadway show, to be in theater. It's wonderful, but it's, it's monotonous. It's not as glamorous as you think. I don't think I would be, I'm not saying I'm happy now, <laughs> but I'm not saying, I, I don't think I would necessarily be that much happier working consistently as an actor in a Broadway show. So on the matter of dreams, I think it, for me, it's been just a matter of readjusting them. Very well put. Wow. I always like to end my shows by just giving the guests the stage. You can just take the microphone. What would you say to anyone who's tuning in? We just never know who's listening, but what would you say to them? I would say 50 years ago, uh, last month, 1969, the greatest performer who ever lived, in my opinion, and in many people's opinions, died way too young and she had a gift that comes along once every hundred years i mean this kind of thing rarely happens and you you, you can put other people into this category obviously so many different types of performers people like frank sinatra even ella fitzgerald you know this kind of talent but she has meant so much to so many people in such a profound way, if you haven't listened to her things, to her music, to her songs, to her recordings, or watched her movies, you are missing out on a huge, huge part of not just American history, but of human history, in that this kind of talent simply doesn't exist anymore. So do yourself a favor, get Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall, Open a bottle of wine, turn the lights out, have a ball. All right. Well, I'm not letting you off the hook because, as you remember earlier, <laughs> I told you to imagine in your head the song that you would sing with Liza Minnelli if you could do a duet with her. But I said, don't tell us what it is yet. Do you have it in your mind? I do. Okay. It's not a duet. It's not a duet per se. And it's not a song, as far as I know or can remember, that they sang together. But because it's one of my favorite songs, and because Judy debuted it, and because it feels like home, 
the song I would want to sing as a duet with Liza would be Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Uh-huh. Very And very here we interesting. are in July, so it would be Christmas <laughs> in July. But it's such a perfect song and and I know how much it must it must have meant to Li- must mean to Liza and how much it must have meant to Judy as well. So I think that would be the the song. Did you have another one in mind? Oh, I didn't know what you I, I thought maybe it would be Oh gosh, maybe smile or something like that. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> but I I was hoping you would sing us a line from that song. <laughs> Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide day next July. Da, da, da. <laughs> <laughs> That was more than one line, but and I think I started a little bit too high. <laughs> well, again, ladies and gentlemen, August 14th, Feinstein's 54 Below. Catch the show. It's Seth Sykes, The Songs That Got Away. Seth, thank you very much for spending time with us. It was so much fun. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Until next time. Bye-bye. Pop, pop, doodly, zing, bang, doodly, knock, cock, cheep, da, boo. Bippity, pot, a, cut, a, gee, da, po, pop, bed, a, like, a, teen, look. Oh, was a, get, a, get, mad, oh, no, oh, get, a, get, a, see, like, a, for, tell, to, call, a, muck, a, teen, look, a, punk, mm, goodbye.